Peace be with you. Let's do it again with the microphone. Well, as Drew said, uh, my name's Cole Kirby, and I'm one of the pastors at Sojourn Montrose. It's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. I've been asking Drew uh, pretty much incessantly, and finally he agreed to let me come. And so that's not really true. He was offered m- multiple times. Uh, but this morning, we, we get to continue walking through the Gospel of Luke, in which Jesus is revealed to us as the Redeemer of all that Israel or God's people were called and created to be from the beginning. And in today's passage, Jesus is calling us to live as those who have been totally redeemed, totally redeemed unto the will and the person of God. And it's a high and difficult calling. But I believe it also gets to the heart and the beauty of the kingdom of God. And so if we take the words of Jesus this morning to heart, and we learn to live obediently to them in response to them, and by the power of the Spirit, I'm convinced of a few things. First, I'm convinced that this church community in Oak Forest will be transformed. I'm convinced that your neighborhood will be transformed, and that the city will be transformed. But the most certain thing that I'm convinced of is that you, as a son or daughter of God, will be changed. You will become more free and more godly. And so let's pray and humble ourselves before the words of God and ask Him who has the power to save and redeem and renew all things to allow our hearts and our minds and our bodies to glorify him in response to his word. Father, we come to you thankful for your word, your word revealed by your spirit, your word manifested in your son, and your word proclaimed to us this morning. Would you humble our hearts to be obedient to it? Would you transform our hearts to find it lovely and beautiful and to see your grandeur and your glory in all of it? Would we see the beauty of King Jesus and seek to aspire to him, to partake of his kingdom and his glory, his eternal life and his everlasting joy? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you read the New Testament, what you will find is that it is full of unbelievably explicit messaging regarding how we ought to view ourselves. And these messages about how we are to view ourselves are often in direct conflict with the current doctrines of the age that we inhabit. Because our society places the self at the forefront of existence. And this is proved by the ubiquity of resources and ideals surrounding the promotion and flourishing of the self. If the self is the most important thing, then it is no wonder that our world tells us that success is found in self-care and in living your best life, which often means doing all of the things you love, avoiding all of the things you hate, and cutting toxic people and environments out of your life. And that doing this is what your happiness and your ability to achieve your goals rests upon. 
And so only when you take care of yourself and love yourself and pursue all of the things that make you happy and make you feel good will you have meaning. And will you be able to be a good friend or a good spouse or, most importantly, a good professional? Selfishness, according to the doctrines of our secular religion, is the portrait of health and satisfaction. The radical promotion of the self also leads us into a culture that is obsessed with victimhood. If the supreme value is happiness and success for my desires, for myself, then any impediment upon achieving self-actualization is not only an obstacle, but it has become an enemy and an oppressor. And this worldview is really disturbing. I hope that you're seeing that for a lot of reasons, but maybe the foremost reason is because it's highly offensive to real victims, people who have experienced real oppression, real suffering, real abuse. And all the while, what we see is Jesus telling us that those who lose their lives will find it. Paul tells us in his letters that we should count others as more significant than ourselves, The scriptures are clear. Exaltation of the self is dangerous, it's unholy, and it always results in undesirable consequences. And in the passage directly preceding today's text, Jesus tells us that the happy ones or the blessed ones in the kingdom of God are the poor, the hungry, the sad, the hated, and the persecuted. And then he goes on to warn the rich the full, the laughing, and the famous, that the day of reckoning is coming for them. And now we get to Luke chapter 6, where Jesus commands his people to willingly lay down their rights to self-fulfillment, to become the kinds of people that we are taught by the world to consider foolish or worse, pathetic. Those who choose the lot of the victim on purpose. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Take a punch, turn the other cheek, and take another. Have your jacket taken from you? Offer your shirt as well. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if someone steals from you, let them have it. It's nothing to you. See, in God's kingdom, Every way in which the world seeks to experience a sense of self-worth or importance or happiness is disregarded. Money, laughter, and a full belly, Jesus says woe to these things. Loving your enemy, however, is the way of Christ. Being a victim becomes the position of blessedness in the kingdom of God. And now I want to be clear, I don't believe that Jesus is calling us to be naive or intentional enablers of wickedness. He's not calling us to be those who at every moment volunteer ourselves for every opportunity to be taken advantage of. He says, when you are hated, you are blessed. Not go seek to be hated, that you might be blessed. But Jesus is calling his disciples to this ideal, that at every moment in your life, when your flesh 
and when your society demand that you advocate for yourself or react to a circumstance with vengeance and hostility to consider first the person you are dealing with. This becomes clear in verse 31 when Jesus says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is a really powerful way of teaching because Jesus is, has just finished telling us that when we are treated the exact opposite of the way that we would want to be treated, that we should lean into that, that we should steer into the spin, if you will. Essentially, we are taught to consider the desires of the self only as we apply them to others, especially those who least deserve it. Jesus is asking us, do you want to be treated as you deserve? Or would you prefer, if you were really honest, that you would be treated as one who deserved only the best, even when you know that isn't true? So sober self-assessment becomes the way of emulating Christ in the world. We can only resist judgment, as he calls us to later in the passage, when we turn our gaze inward toward our own sins, removing the plank from our eye before we recognize the speck in our brothers. We can only be generous to the undeserving when we recognize that we are in need of similar care from others and, most importantly, from the God of the universe. But even so, I I would imagine that you're wondering if this sort of willingness to be taken advantage of can actually be a good thing? Is this actually healthy? It seems the exact opposite of what we're taught is healthy. When you hear Jesus inviting you to willingly pursue a life of suffering and victimhood, how many of you are already listing the what about scenarios in your head? What about this biblical text that, that calls people to this certain way of living? Or, or what about this sort of circumstance? But I think we need to look at the text honestly and ask ourselves, did Jesus couch these commandments in circumstantial language? No, he doesn't. He doesn't tell us to love our enemies unless they are people who have really hurt you or worse, hurt your family. He doesn't say do good to those who hate you unless practicing this sort of kindness will do you significant emotional harm. He just tells us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. Full stop. Now there's a legitimate need for us to learn to discern and rightly apply this sort of ethical teaching. Because in different contexts and circumstances, just blanketing over with these sort of things can be dangerous. There's no way in which this sort of expectation of humility or lowliness among the Christian church should lead to Christian-on-Christian violence and victimizing. In other words, if a Christian brother steals from you, Christ is still calling you not to demand that he return what he's stolen. But on the other hand, if you're a Christian, you better not be stealing from your brother. And you better not do so expecting that you won't be called to repentance. Luke 6 doesn't give us license to abuse the grace that's offered to us in a fully and properly functioning church community. This is also not a text that Jesus meant for us to flaunt in the face of women or children who are in homes being abused, encouraging them to stay in a place where they're in physical danger. 
But even so, we have to resist the urge to what about our way into making the authoritative word of God impotent. The heart of this teaching is a call to resist the need to advocate for ourselves and to reject the world's teaching that we should only inhabit spaces and relationships in which we are respected and treated with kindness. The people of God are to be a lowly, generous, hospitable, and often trampled people. Because this is the nature of the true Israel of God. This is the nature of the people that Christ has come to redeem and reestablish. And, and I think it would be helpful if we considered the story of Joseph read for us from Genesis 45. Joseph was abused and sold into slavery by his brothers as a young man. And then he's framed for a crime that he didn't commit and spends time in prison. And yet, in the end, years later, he ends up serving at the right hand of Egypt in, uh, at the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And when we get to Genesis 45, there's a famine in the homeland of Joseph's family. And so his brothers have heard that in Egypt there is food, and so they make the journey to Egypt to beg that they might be cared for, and they end up at the feet of their brother that they sold into slavery. When when they show up at his feet, Joseph had every opportunity to give them what they deserved, which was nothing, to send them home and to see what the famine might do to them. But instead, he treats them with kindness and with generosity He advocates for them in the courts of Pharaoh and makes sure that all of their needs are met. And so he had every right, seemingly, to tell them to figure it out on their own, to laugh in their face, to tell them that they should have thought about that when they sold him into slavery. But Joseph gives us a glimpse of the kind of people that God wanted Israel to be, a people who operate with grace and with mercy a people who don't focus on justice for wrongs done to them, but instead see their enemies and treat them as brothers and friends. Joseph operated with a radical confidence, a confidence in the love and provision and promises of God, such that he didn't need to advocate for himself, and he didn't need himself to be the arbiter of justice. And so this story reveals to us the sort of love and generosity that Christ is commanding us to walk in. And it's not weakness. Loving your enemies sounds like a weak thing to do, but instead it's a strong and glorious thing to love your enemy. To be gracious when you will get nothing in return. See, the Lord of the universe isn't calling us to be poor, pitiful victims. He's calling us to be warriors of sacrificial love. And the story of Joseph sheds light on that, and it sheds light on the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was a lot like Joseph, rejected, hated, and sold by his brothers, put in chains by a foreign government like Joseph. But instead of becoming the counselor to Pilate or to Caesar, he was put to death as a criminal. He was treated unfairly and brutally at every step. And yet, the suffering he endured at the hands of those who hated him most was an act of love toward them. On the cross, our Lord pled their forgiveness 
with his mouth and with his blood. He poured out forgiveness for their sins. So the blessings of God are now available to the enemies of God through the sufferings of Christ. Selfless love makes it possible for those whose sins nailed Jesus to that tree to come to him like the brothers of Joseph in poverty and in need and for him to receive them with gladness and charity and invite them to partake in all the fruits of his kingdom as he sits at the right hand of a ruler far better than Pharaoh, at the right hand of the God of the universe. He is dispensing glory to those who were his enemies offering grace and everything that his people might need. See, Jesus' ministry was one of peculiar love, marked by the willful rejection of the self. And so, we shouldn't be surprised that he is calling us to live lives marked by peculiar love and the willful rejection of ourselves. In verses 32 through 34 of this chapter in Luke 6, Jesus asked us, what is so special about loving those who love you? Sinners can do that, he says. See, symbiotic relationships are nice. Mutually beneficial relationships are nice, but they aren't the relationships that communicate the fullness of the power and love and glory and grace of God to the world in the way that the world desperately needs. Selfless love, undeserved love does that. See, Christ is calling us to love others, not only who hate us, but in the way that he has loved us. When he asks us in verse 31 to consider how we would want to be treated, he's making a point about the way that he has treated us. He, the God of heaven, has lowered himself to be human. But not only to be human, but to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, fully rejected by the people he came to serve. To be mocked and ridiculed and hated, and he has done this to redeem humanity through his love. And now, we see that Luke 6 is not a call to a life of misery, but rather an invitation to participate in the redemption of God in the world. So what do we get if we do this? If we reject ourselves every opportunity, give to those who will never give back to us. Verse 35 says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So what's in it for us? Heavenly reward, sonship in the household of God, the trustworthy kindness of God at every moment. What more could we want than these things? And not only these, but we get to meaningfully take part in the redemption of all creation because selfless love and sacrifice are the means and the tools by which God is redeeming all things. Many of you probably wonder, even if this is a high and beautiful calling, even if there is some heavenly reward, how can I actually love this way? Won't I always be running on empty? Won't I be exhausted and weak? Isn't this sort of life unsustainable? 
The text ends today, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Then he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This language of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, is the language of how to fill a storage container with grain. First, get a lot of grain and put it in. And then press it down to make more room. And then shake it to make even more room. And then take a lot more grain and continue putting it in until it's running over. This is the abundance of the kingdom of God. This is the way that God blesses and loves and sustains his people who give themselves at every moment to others. He is constantly making more room for more love such that it is overflowing at every moment, at every day by the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the answer to questions about burnout and unsustainability are answered. Will you be exhausted? Yes. Will you be weak? Purposefully. Will you be running on empty? So long as you abide in Christ, never. In fact, he told us, we will be the truly happy ones. Church, Christian love, God's love, is not self-concerned. It is patient and kind. It lacks envy and boasting. It is utterly devoid of arrogance, rudeness, and insisting on its own way. Christian love isn't irritable, and it's not resentful. In fact, it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. And brothers and sisters, it never ends. So let us, together, as the brothers and sisters sons of God in his household, take up the cross. Follow our elder brother Christ into the glory and victory and joy that he has won for us forever. And through this, may we hope that we see the day that our neighbors and our city and the nations are redeemed through this selfless love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift of grace that you have given to us all things, foremost your son, that we might too be called sons, that we might partake of the heavenly gift, that we might be given forgiveness in all of our sins, mercy in all of our need, generosity in all that we lack. Would you fill us with confidence in your promises and the gifts of your spirit that we might, out of the abundance of love you have given to us, overflow our community with this sort of abundance of love. Give us the trust in you that we might reject ourselves. Pray that we would believe your promise that when you say that we will lose our lives to find it, that that is true. May we lose our lives daily to you and find them in you. It's in the name of the most glorious Jesus that we pray. Amen.